Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, um, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm a pastor here at Advent, and uh, it's a joy to be gathered together this evening. Um, and it will be evening by the time we're, we're done in here uh, with, the, with the beautiful uh, fallback uh, that we are currently having. Um, would you all turn to page 11 in your bulletins, and I'm going to read for us our sermon text um, which definitely skips one major part uh, of the uh, of um, this biblical passage in Daniel, and there's a reason for it. It's because rather than focusing on the aspects of the prophetic vision in Daniel's dream, I want to focus on what the vision uh, is actually all about, um, rather than focus on each specific detail, which could take. Sundays and Sundays worth of sermoning, we're focusing on what it is that God was doing in his gracious gift of this dream to Daniel and God's people. So we're going to read from Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, and then again, uh, picking up later, verses 15 to 18. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Well, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me, and he made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Father, we... Um, Lord, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you for opportunities like this to, um, to peek behind the curtain, to see the ways that you're at work in our world, um, where the heavenly realm and the earthly realm are, are kind of mended together here in Daniel's dream. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider the really challenging nature of this passage, that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Um, and Lord, more so that you would stir within our hearts um, our wills to follow you. In Christ we pray. Amen. Um, when I was a, a kid, <clears throat> I used to have incredibly vivid nightmares. Um, and uh, not only that, I was a, a big sleepwalker as well, but um, one of the recurring nightmares that I would have actually makes no sense and is laughably silly uh, when I actually say it out loud, but it terrified me. It was pitch darkness. It was all black and a tennis ball that would go back and forth and back and forth. And that was it. That was the totality of the dream. And I would wake up screaming or actually what would, you know, I think y'all have probably been in these circumstances as well where you, you think you're screaming, but it's like, ah, you know, you can't actually make any noise. Right. And, and that's almost even more terrifying. Um, 
So by the time I'd kind of get my wits about me, I'd try and explain what was going on, and I'd try and give little details to my parents or anybody else who maybe asked um, unwittingly about, about such a nightmare. And I was incredibly anxious, and I struggled to tell them the actual details of the dream. All I could really do was tell them just a little bit about it and help them convey uh, what I felt. It wasn't so much what I saw that mattered, it was what I felt about the dream that mattered. And so Daniel's vision here is much the same. It's not meant to be read scientifically or with this one-to-one correspondence between the vision and reality, between the imagery and what it pertains to in history. We're not meant to kind of psychoanalyze the dream Freudian style, but rather we're to read it with the understanding that God is conveying, and particularly through Daniel, is conveying a deep feeling, this sense of terror. The things that have been greatly, that have been put on him in this vision are greatly upsetting to him. But in the midst of all of that, God is doing something about it. He's actually bringing a real and genuine hope. And so this afternoon, we're going to talk about this, this passage here in Daniel. And like I said before, we're not going to talk specifically about the vision itself. Um, but I want to focus here on three particular things that led to his anxiety and how the entirety of this vision brings about a genuine hope. And so first, I want to talk about the fear of chaos. Secondly, the tyranny of control. And then third, the peace of receiving. So let's first talk about the fear of chaos. To put the passage in some context for us, Daniel is a Jew living in Babylonian exile. He's become a friend to the Babylonian Empire, uh, emperor in particular, and he's he's become known as a a dream interpreter, um, a prophet even. But this is a dream that Daniel is now having for himself. And his dream is one that frightens him. It gives him a bunch of anxiety, and he doesn't know what to make of it, right? So the dream begins uh, with with its setting, and this feels like a throwaway detail, but it's actually really important to understand all of what's going on here in the passage, and that is the setting is the great sea. This great sea is stirred up by the four winds, right? And and the winds here, they're, they're coming from everywhere, Right? Um, they're more powerful and they're more problematic than you might expect. And, and this is meant to be illustrative of, of an uncreated state. This unmitigated chaos. This disorder. Because if we remember back to the very beginning of the Bible, it says, In the beginning God and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Water throughout the Old Testament and really throughout the scriptures as a whole is, is often associated um, with the sea or with the ocean. And um, if we remember correctly, the world of the Bible doesn't really have Disney cruises um, as an assumption of what it looks like to be upon the waters and to be upon the sea. Anytime you go on the waters or on the sea, you are taking your own life into, uh, into in not really even your own hands. You're basically risking it in this chaos. So the sea represents chaos. It represents pre-created order. 
right? When, when God decides to take the waters and separates them, he causes them to, to recede. He's demonstrating his own order, his own ability and, and power over that chaos. So Daniel is having a nightmare, right? This nightmare is, is, is of a disordered, confused, chaotic state where things feel like the whole world is, is moving further and further away from the way God created it, the way God designed it. And Daniel's afraid. He's afraid of the pain and the struggle that comes in a chaotic world. But the thing is, this pain and this struggle um, of chaos is not just this nightmarish fear from Daniel's dream. It's actually a lived reality of every day of his life. His people, all of Israel, but particularly the southern kingdom, had been conquered by Babylon. They were exiled from their homes. They were subjugated to a foreign, to a foreign people, and they were had and made to, to serve a pagan and blasphemous ruler. And while we are not in exile in the way that Daniel was, there is no era of, of, the, of the history of the church or the history of the world where there isn't some aspect of disorder, of chaos and discord. And anytime we encounter the slightest hint of chaos, it causes fear and it actually tempts us to sin. Because by definition, chaos is random, right? And if it's random, then that means God is not in control. It's like being on a turbulent plane and being a little bit frightened and then somehow thinking, wait, there's not a pilot on this plane. All of a sudden, that little fear gets enormous. When you begin to think no one is in control of this chaos, no one is in control of this turbulence, it turns, it turns us uh, to a place of, of, of self-trust, everyone out for themselves. We need to be our own God because obviously we need to save ourselves in these circumstances. God is not in control. Look around. No one's coming to help. And I think if we're honest, most of us most of us feel like we're living in that type of reality right now in our current culture. We're living in an incredibly chaotic time. Sort of a, a, a very silly illustration of it, but this past week, um, you know, getting all into the Astros, not once, not twice, but like multiple times, I've had to defend against the conspiracy theory that Jose Altuve wore a buzzer on his chest to, de to, to de you know, to decide in 2019 when to swing and hit a home run, despite the fact that it was made up on Twitter, right? Um, People believe in conspiracy theories over and over again. And so what happens when we don't know what to trust? What happens when we don't know or even have the same view of reality with one another? It's easy to think that that, that doesn't happen to me or that just happens to all of those people out there. We don't get caught up in those types of things. But it's rampant everywhere. From things that are incredibly serious, like Holocaust denying, or things like, you know, the conspiracy theory that gargling bleach would somehow cure COVID, or beliefs that 9-11 were an inside job by those in power to stay in power, or kind of on the non-politically oriented beliefs, like things like flat earthism. If you've ever watched that documentary on Netflix, it's terrifying. These are examples of big ones, but even the other day, like uh, when I start listing these, I start thinking like, man, I'm, I'm awesome. I haven't fallen into any of these, except I did this week. Um, I was caught in a joke. 
There was something posted on social media that was a, a, a Princeton study where they were conducted, uh, they conducted and determined what the very first man would have looked like. It was a 3D image, and it looked just like Vin Diesel, and I believed it, and it was a joke, right? Um, and afterward, I went through this moment of crisis, like, what, what, what's wrong with me? What do I need to be paying attention to? What is real? I don't even know anymore. Right? It's in those moments when we can't figure out what is real, when we begin to lose any sense of trust, that chaos begins to take over. Right? Daniel's nightmare, we recognize, feels all too real for what we are going through in our current moment. Some of us, um, uh, we're actually going to talk a little bit about this in, in uh, the announcement section, are going to be gathering together to read The Last Battle, uh, or to discuss that we have read or want to read The Last Battle uh, on Wednesday. Um, and The Last Battle is, is uh, C.S. Lewis's final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, Narnia um, and it's about the story of a talking monkey and a talking donkey who find a lion's skin. The monkey's name is Shift, um, and, uh, and he tells the donkey named Puzzle to put the lion's skin on. And the monkey's plan is, for, uh, is basically for Puzzle to pretend that he is Aslan, who is the, the creator of Narnia, and who is the king, the rightful king over Narnia. And this is a good plan, particularly for Shift, right, who's, who's figured out that if you can say and do anything in the king's name, then you can get and do anything that you want. So Shift lays around all day, ordering people to do his bidding, enslaving them, and even murdering for any folks who don't obey the, the authority of the puppet Aslan, the fake Aslan. And so very quickly, Narnia begins to dissolve. Just as quickly, though, Shift loses control over Puzzle, who's been captured by the true Narnians. And so without the physically present fake Aslan, uh, to lend himself authority, he needs to come up with a plan. What is he going to do? Well, he does what every good totalitarian government does. He begins a propaganda campaign. Rather than hide the fact that the Narnians had been tricked by a false Aslan, he says, well, there's this fake Aslan out there. And he tells everyone um, that this one is impersonating the real one. And now the, now the real Aslan is very angry because you listen to this fake one. And the only way to appease the real Aslan is now to listen to Shift, who knows everything that's right and good. Well, here's the point. Shift's new deceit doesn't convince everyone. In fact, it's in this revelation with deceit upon deceit upon deceit that some segments of Narnia have now determined that I've been tricked too many times. My heart is now completely shut off. The dwarves, from that point on, consistently say through the rest of the book, the dwarves are for the dwarves. We don't care about anything else. The dwarves are for the dwarves. In other words, they aren't listening to anyone else. They're going to circle the wagons and they're going to care for their own. They're going to have no love or affection toward any others because that opens them up to all sorts of trouble. This is what chaos does to us. Who can I trust? I've been fooled too much before. I will not be fooled again. So the church is for the church. Or the women are for the women. Or this ethnic group is for this ethnic group only. 
We believe that if we can just cut off our interactions with the wrong people out there, then we won't be fooled any longer and we can figure out what the truth is because, because it's people outside of us who are wrong and I'm not going to listen to them any longer. All right, we begin in chaos when we think God is not here. He's not a part of what's going on. We think we need to circle the wagons to take care of the communal anxiety that we're feeling which often leads us to try and take control. And so that's our second point, the tyranny of control. So out of the chaos of the waters, Daniel dreams uh, that four different beasts emerge. And these, these beasts are abnormal creatures, right? It says they are like these frightening and strong animals, if you were to read through the passage, uh, th these, these normal animals that you might know, but they're mixed up altogether, so if we were to have read one of the specifics, it would say that one was like a lion, but with eagle's wings. And these hybrid animals are important because it, they actually would have been considered by Jewish law to have been unclean animals because of their hybrid status. They weren't, and they weren't according to their own kinds as God had created them. It demonstrates uh, that each one is therefore unclean. And so Daniel's dream picks up on, on this imagery. These folks, these, these now kings, these beasts, represent those that are antithetical to God's people. And for our sake, like I said, we're not going to focus on, on the beasts specifically, but rather we're going to focus on them as a whole because it picks up in verse 17 where it says that the four beasts are the four kings who rise out of the earth. And almost all commentators believe and agree that these four kings represent the four empires uh, from the time of Babylon to the time of Christ. So the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks... And the Romans. But like most apocalyptic literature of which this is, uh, they're also symbolic. They're symbolic of beastly and blasphemous pagan kings. Kings who don't bring about flourishing and prosperity in, in any godly or heavenly sense. But kings who instead are insistent upon some aspect of tyranny. Tyranny for all people, but particularly for God's people. And the beauty of this type of biblical writing is that we very clearly begin to see the curtain between heaven and earth dissolve, where there's no clear line of demarcation between what is happening in our world and what is happening with our Lord in the heavenly realms. And so though these kings may relate uh, to particular people and particular empires, they also represent moments in history where God's people all experience the chaos of tyranny. Because we've all experienced uh, terrifying political forces. We've all experienced terrifying social forces. We've experienced kings and rulers who actively seek to subvert what is true, good, and godly in the world. And when we do, we struggle to know what to do. But that's what Daniel's passage is about for us. What do we do in those moments? And his image gives us hope. Which is the third point, the peace of receiving. I'm going to grab some water real quick. Verse 18, 
it says, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Though these kings will come out of the chaos, though there will be tyrannical and terrible rule over all of us, though it may look like our God is not in control or that he might be asleep at the wheel, it says the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess it. So who is this promise for? Is this promise for the extra righteous? Right? Um, is, it, is it for those who've, who've done like extra special things for God's kingdom? Right? Isn't that what, what saints are? Oftentimes that's what we believe. Well, this says it is for the saints, which in Hebrew here is the word Kaddish, which literally means holy ones or set apart ones. So the saints aren't those who've lived more righteously or more amazingly than any others. Rather, the saints are those who have been set apart by God. In other words, it's all of those who are God's people who've been called according to his righteousness, not by our own merit. The saints are the ones who will receive God's kingdom because one, like a son of man, as it says in verse 13 in the passage we, we didn't read, um, it says one like a son of man will come down and will bring the kingdom. This king is not like the beasts that we read about, frightening and terrible, but rather he is one like a son of man. He is the true human he will bring this kingdom that will last forever. And what does it say that the saints need to do in order to participate in this kingdom forever? Well, it says they need to receive it. And we spent a long time earlier this semester talking about that very thing when we said that the reason we picked the word uh, for embrace in our mission statement was because before we do anything as Christians, we need to remind, remind ourselves that we are on the receiving end. We did nothing to earn God's grace, but rather we receive it from him. And that's what it says here. They receive it because they need to receive him because he is the one who actually sets us apart. He is the one who makes us holy and he is the one who brings about his kingdom. Far from being absent-minded, far from being or having no control over the circumstances that are all around us, um, he's in complete control. The world may feel like it's descending into chaos. The world may feel like tyrannical rule is having its day, but God is in complete control and his kingdom is here and it will be forever. So this, this week in particular, as, as another election cycle looms, remember this world is not descending into chaos. Um, Though we're all experiencing and feeling the cultural trust eroding, though you may feel um, like we need to try and seize control, or you may feel like we need to just ignore it all and not do any of it. Let this passage remind you that Jesus has brought his kingdom. We don't need to try and establish a Christian kingdom here. We don't need to utterly self-protect ourselves and cut ourselves off from tyrannical rule out there. We can still be a church that is for the world. And not just for ourselves. His kingdom has come and it is forever. But secondly, and this is where I, I want to spend a little bit more application time. Um, because it is All Saints Sunday. 
Uh, and this passage is, is traditionally read at least once every three years in the lectionary on All Saints Day. What we need to remember is that we're not the first of God's people to go through this. That though it feels like the world may be uh, descending into chaos right now, it has happened again and again and again. So what does it look like for us to look at our brothers and sisters who have gone before us and to take their example? Let's remember that there are brothers and sisters who've gone before us. Let's remember people like the martyr Polycarp, who, who was called to faithfulness in the midst of Roman persecution. Let's remember people like Perpetua, the North African woman who loved her Lord and refused to recant her faith, despite the fact that there were beasts outside in the arena threatening and ultimately that did bring about her death. Let's remember St. Patrick, who is not Irish, right, but who was actually imprisoned in Ireland, and he came to know Jesus while he was there. He left Ireland, but ultimately it was his love of Jesus that brought him back there to proclaim the good news to his captors. Let's remember people like Corey Tim Boom, who, along with her family, were the hands and feet of Christ to their Jewish neighbors during German occupation in World War II. She remained faithful even when she was in prison for seeking to love other people the way Christ would. Let's remember people like William Wilberforce and his use of political influence to end slavery. Let's remember Martin Luther King Jr. who spoke words of peace toward all those who hated him for Christ's sake. And as we said and as we prayed in our confession of sin, let us neither exalt them to a place that they should not be because only the Lord Jesus should be exalted, nor let us tear them down because they are saints and they are sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. But their example helps us know how to live in a time that is chaotic right now. May we learn from our brothers and sisters who've gone before us, who've risked their lives and followed in faith. We don't we don't remember them by putting our faith in people like them, right? They're certainly sinners, but we remember them because they show us what it looks like to live in challenging circumstances. So may they point us toward faithfulness in Christ, who by the Holy Spirit ultimately leads us to faithfulness amidst chaos. <clears throat> but then may we turn and learn from each other. May we learn from each other who are also saints. Let's celebrate together all the ways, big and small. And those, uh, you know, those in our community are standing in faith in the midst of chaotic world. The courage and steadfastness of all those in this room are a testament to God's faithfulness to us, his saints. And we can take heart that he's faithful outside of these walls as well. Because we can know with surety that the kingdom of God has brought and is bringing, um, it is through Jesus Christ forever. Let me conclude with this. <clears throat> There's a man by the name of Samuel Rutherford. He was a 17th century Scottish, um, Scottish pastor and writer. And if, if you were on the island of Great Britain, kind of from the point of the 1500s to the 1700s, you were going through a season of unbelievable political and ecclesiastical uh, chaos at that time. 
the church after Henry VIII famously established the own English church so he could do whatever he want. Well, then you know, went through these series of, of back and forthness based upon whatever future king or queen came in. So it went from Anglican to Catholic to Presbyterianism in Scotland to all sorts of other things. And so uh, Samuel Rutherford at the time decided he was going to be a faithful Scottish pastor. Um, and that's what he was. He was ultimately uh, defrocked from being a pastor by those around him because of his inherent preaching of, of the means of grace uh, or the doctrines of grace, I should say. But not only that, he wrote a book called Lex Rex, um, which I didn't know. I don't know any Latin. Um, but if any of y'all do, check me if I'm right. It means the law is king. And the king didn't like that. Because up until that time, what the king said, what the king did was above the law. But what Samuel Rutherford was trying to articulate in his writing was that no king is above the law, but rather all kings are subject to the king and therefore his law. And so it was around the time that, that Rutherford was, was uh, um, about to die, actually, that the king found out about this and, and called him to come before parliament to answer for his treasonous book. And it, as God providentially had it, he was on his deathbed at the time, but he wrote back this reply. He said, though I've been summoned, I have got summons already before a superior judge and judicatory. And I behove to answer to my first summons and ere your day come where I will be where few kings, but great folks come. The point was this. He needed to remain obedient to the one true king, to Jesus Christ, in the midst of what was going on all around him, in the midst of his chaos. So no matter what chaos surrounds us, we must fix our eyes upon our one true king. God has not abandoned us, but one like a son of man has come and brought his kingdom to us. May we remain fixed upon him by his Holy Spirit. Would y'all pray with me unto that end? Our Father, we thank you. Um, Lord, though, though we live in times that are challenging, um, though we've been through uh, challenging circumstances with the pandemic, and uh, though the election cycle looms and the commercials make everything seem like it's about to all fall apart, May we remember that you hold all things together. Father, though evil things happen in this world, you do ultimately work them out for your good. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray that your kingdom would come. Lord, that we would fix our eyes upon Christ and we would remain faithful as he has been faithful to us. We pray and we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.